Let's pray. I know we just got done praying, but it, it really gives me a great comfort when we pray before the sermon and just collectively rely on the Lord for him to speak to us. Would you bow with me once again? Father, we do. We, we look to you now. And I confess, I have no good thing to offer from within myself to your people this morning, but your word is good and true and powerful. And what it points us to in Jesus Christ and what the Lord's Supper points us to is everything for us. So would you just clear away all the debris that might confuse our minds or be a barrier for us and just the open, soft-hearted reception of your word and your gospel this morning, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So I want you to imagine it's tomorrow afternoon, sometime wherever you would be around lunchtime tomorrow, and you get a call from me. And I say, uh, you know, after the service yesterday, I met with the board, and we just feel like our Sunday morning worship services have room to, for improvement. Um, I'm kind of a minimalist sort of guy. I think less is almost always more. And we've decided to try something radical with our worship service. We just want to trim it back. All those elements in our worship service, you can look at them in your bulletin. All those different pieces of the order, we just want to remove some of that to give a little more breathing room to things. And we unanimously voted and we put you in charge of the worship service from now on. And your task is to figure out what what would you like to remove from our usual worship service. Do you still have yesterday's bulletin? So you get yesterday's bulletin out and look at it. I don't know. I don't know why you're asking me to do it. Um, maybe the, the welcome. I mean, uh, usually Mark Jameson's already welcomed everybody when he does the announcements. Maybe that's a little redundant, and we already hear your voice so much through the service. We could use a little bit of a break. Why don't we, why don't we do without the welcome part? So, okay, well, that's good. Welcome's gone. But that's not enough. We, we actually want to trim it back even further so we need you to find some more things that we can trim out of the bulletin. He said, well, how many things am I supposed to delete from our order of service each Sunday? I said, well, we're getting pretty radical. We actually want to trim it down to just one thing. We think it'd be better to do one thing well than try to do a bunch of stuff. So we're just going to do one thing when we get together on Sunday mornings. We can't decide which one it's going to be, so that's why we elected you to do it. So what's the one thing we should do each week when we get together? Now, what would you pick? What would you say? You can think about it. You don't have to actually say it out loud. Some of you might think, well, we can't get together without prayer, so I guess we would just pray together. And some of you might think, well, probably more than us talking to God, we should hear from God, so maybe it should just be the sermon or at least scripture reading. Maybe that would be the one thing that we would do together. Doris, you actually want to submit an answer? Okay, but that's two things, and you can only do one thing. (laughs) Now you're adding elements to it. Come on. Well, some people who really study these things scripturally would argue that if you're only going to do one thing, it should be the Lord's Supper. If we were just going to pick one thing, that's all we're going to do. It should be the Lord's Supper when we come together. Now, why would that be the case? I would have to think through it a little more, but I know a lot of people I respect, I think, would say that. Now, we know that this is really important and central to our being the church together, but is it really that important? Why is it so important? I want us to think about it 
as we prepare ourselves to receive it this morning. It is that important. And it's going to help us to revisit the story of how it came to be instituted in the first place, which, by God's providence, is where we happen to be in Mark, just in our natural progression this Sunday. We're in Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 12. And this is when the Lord's Supper was first put into place by Jesus himself. So let's read verse 12. Uh, to get us in that mindset, they're in Jerusalem. Everybody's getting ready to celebrate the Passover. There's a plot underway for Jesus to be arrested and killed. Judas has already gone to the religious authorities, the Jewish religious authorities, and said, I'll betray him to you. And so this is all going on. And then here we are in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So it's the main event now. The reason all these Jews, Jews are in Jerusalem for the Passover is time to get things together for this meal. Now the Passover was an annual tradition for the Jewish people that God had commanded them to follow. And it was all about remembering back to when he freed them from Egypt. So way back, generations back from here where we're reading, God's people had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And God, with a mighty hand, freed them from Egyptian slavery. And he did it in such a way that there could be no doubt that he is the one true God. He, there was, remember, there's ten plagues. Each plague was basically a punch to the face to one of the Egyptian false gods that they worshipped. And the tenth plague was the worst of all. You remember what the tenth plague was? Killing of the firstborn. So God said, this is the tenth, the final plague. After this, Pharaoh will release you. I will come through in the night. All the firstborn of the Egyptian households and the firstborn livestock, for that matter, will be killed. And it will finally break Pharaoh and he'll let you go. And what I want you to do, my people, God says, is I want you to slaughter a spotless lamb, sprinkle some of the blood of that spotless lamb over your doorpost of your homes, and then I want you to eat a meal in a particular way. I want you to eat unleavened bread faster. You don't have to wait for the leaven to leavenate, whatever it does. You need to eat it with your staff in your hand and your clothes on your back, as a symbol of your preparedness, your trust in me, that you are about to be freed. And not only that, I want you every year from now on to eat the similar meal as this so that you do not forget what I'm about to do for you. And so he did. He killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians, and Pharaoh did release them. It was a little bit complicated. He sort of waffled and changed his mind. But this is what we know as the Exodus. And all the Jews were released from Egyptian bondage in such a way that they knew God had done it, that he was God, those false gods were no gods at all, and that they were his special chosen people. They knew who he was, they knew who they were, and God wanted them every year to eat this Passover meal so they wouldn't forget. And this is what they were preparing to do in Mark chapter 14. Let's read on in verse 13. And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, 
and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So there's a lot we could talk about here. Jesus' apparent foreknowledge of, of who these people would be and where this room would be, or perhaps he had prearranged it. It doesn't go into great detail here. It probably is foreknowledge based on what we see coming up with Jesus. I just want you to think about them preparing the Passover meal. There was preparations that would have needed to take place. It might feel kind of like if you're going to host Christmas dinner at your house and there's preparations that, that need to take place, only they were not at home. They were in Jerusalem, so they needed somebody else's house. So they had to secure a place, and then they had to secure some very specific things for that meal. So if you were going to be hosting Christmas dinner, some of you may do that every year, somebody in your family might ask you, well, what are you going to serve for Christmas dinner this year? And it might be turkey, or it might be ham, or it might be McDonald's, something different, depending on what you feel like. That's not the way the Passover worked. This wasn't just a festive occasion to get together and eat a good meal like almost every celebration we Americans have for anything. Each element of the meal had a specific symbolic purpose. So it, it, was, it was precisely tailored to help with their memory problems of what God had done for them in the Exodus. So there could be no leaven in the house. They needed the spotless lamb that was slaughtered in the right way and roasted in the right way. They needed unleavened bread. They needed a bowl of salt water. They needed some bitter herbs. They needed uh, this mixture of dates and raisins and figs and nuts that uh, represented the mortar that they used to make their bricks. They needed enough wine for four different servings of wine, each one representing something different. So the disciples had some prep work to do. They're pulling it together. We'll pick up the story in verse 17. And when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now we won't go deep into this because we talked about Judas a lot last week. But picturing them around this table, it says they were reclining. You might picture Michelangelo. Is it Michelangelo or Leonardo's The Last Supper? Which, one, which guy was that? Leonardo, okay. It's not, not at all important which one painted it. But you remember the famous painting of The Last Supper? It's a long table and they're all, see Jesus is at the center and they're all kind of gathered. I feel like the table in that picture is about waist high. This would have been a lower table. They would have been reclining on their left arm, eating with their right hand, and it would have been more of a U-shape table, according to historians. So you can just kind of picture it. And I want to walk you through the stages of this meal just to give you a sense of how regimented it was and how specific it was. So it would have started, as I understand it, I wasn't there, but as I understand it, it would have started with the host of the meal having a cup and drinking of the cup and passing that cup around. And that cup signified that this meal was sanctified. It was set apart. It was different from just a regular meal. And then there would have been, uh, they would have washed hands, and then he would have had that bowl of salt water and those leafy greens that they were to gather. 
dipped in that salt water to represent what they would have used to sprinkle the blood over the doorposts and also the, the tears of the people of all those generations in slavery. Then there would have been breaking of the first bread, which represented affliction and the brokenness of the people in slavery. And at that point, one of the youngest people in the room would, was supposed to ask, what makes this night different from all other nights? And then the host of the meal would then tell the whole story of the Exodus. Every year, tell the whole story over again. They would have sang some psalms related to the Exodus. There would have been another cup for people to drink from, another hand washing, a prayer. They would have eaten the bitter herbs and that, that mix that I told you about. Then they would have the, the main part of the meal where they ate the lamb, the spotless lamb that was slaughtered. And it all had to be consumed. Anything that wasn't consumed had to be completely burned up. They, they were not going to put some of that lamb in a Tupperware and save it for later. This was set apart for this sacred meal, the Passover meal only. Hand washing. Then more of the unleavened bread, the remainder of the unleavened bread. And that's what probably where they were in the meal at verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Now we've heard those words many times over the years as we've received communion. We need to remember the origin of this. Jesus was redirecting this powerful, long-held symbolism of the Passover meal. Instead of pointing back to the Exodus only, now it also pointed to himself. He said, this bread isn't only meant to point you back to God's faithfulness in the Exodus. It's meant to point you to me. My body's about to be broken for you. After that, there would have been another cup representing Thanksgiving, and that's probably where they were in the meal at verse 23. And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood, of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So here again, Jesus says, this cup that has always for all these generations pointed back to the Exodus, you need to understand is pointing to me. And he, he just redefines this meal. That was an audacious thing to do. I mean, no average Jewish person would dare to just take it upon himself to redefine the elements of this highly symbolic, long-held meal. But Jesus did, and he did have the authority to do it. And then the evening would have closed with more singing of psalms, which is uh, probably what was going on in verse 26. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And that ends Mark's version of the story of the Lord's Supper being put into place. Now the Lord's Supper is in place, and Christians ever since then have been doing something similar to what we're going to do here in a minute. It doesn't always look just like this with the passing of the tray and a little piece of bread and a little cup. Sometimes we even do it differently. When we on the uh, Good Friday have the table set here, and you come and tear bread from one loaf and dip it in the cup. Some uh, churches do it more as an actual meal. Uh, I don't think it's really that vital exactly how you do it, though I think it should be done thoughtful. But the question for us, what we began with, is why is it so important? And what we see as we read the Bible about it is that it's all about memory. It's all about memory. 
God's people have always struggled with their memory. Before Christ came, God's people throughout the Old Testament, and after Christ came, God's people through the New Testament, even now, have always struggled with the sort of spiritual Alzheimer's. And when they forgot in the Old Testament, they pretty much always did the same thing. When they forgot who their God was and who they were as God's people, do you remember what they would always do? They would always wander off to idols. They would always wander off, stop worshiping and trusting the one true God and trust some lesser thing. And God would always have to bring them back over and over and over again, remind them over and over and over again. And that's one of the reasons that he had the Passover meal to be an annual, just remember who I am, who you are, what I've done. And it's one of the same reasons that Jesus then rolls that into communion of the Lord's Supper. We need to be reminded over and over and over again. I've told you guys this before. I grew up going to church. Mom had me and my brother in church pretty much every Sunday. I was pretty docile as a kid. I just kind of went along with whatever was going on. My brother was not so much that way. Uh, If he felt something was inefficient, he was going to speak up about it. And he felt like it was a little bit repetitive. I've heard about Jesus already. Why do I have to go and keep hearing about him every week? What he didn't understand back then is if we don't hear about him over and over again, we will forget. Now, we might be able to recall the facts about Jesus, but we will forget that he is our Savior, and we'll live as if we don't have a Savior. We'll forget that he is our Lord, and we'll live as if we didn't have a Lord. We'll forget that because of Jesus, we've been reconciled to God himself and the God who is the only true God is our God and our Father, and we'll, we'll live as if we don't have connection with him through Jesus Christ. When we forget, we do the same things that the Old Testament people did. We wander off. See if any of this is familiar to you. When we forget Jesus, we start to live like sheep without a shepherd. We start to worry We start to be afraid of everything. We start to feel as if we're all alone out there in the world. Like we don't have a protector and a provider. When we forget, we start to go our own way. As though we're the Lord of our own life. We start to make prayerless decisions. We start to depend on our own strength. When we forget Jesus, we start to live in the old way. The old patterns that were ours before we were made new through Jesus Christ. Sin starts to settle in to our hearts and our habits. When we forget Jesus, we become vulnerable to temptation. We start to seek satisfaction and comfort in broken cisterns of the world because we forget we have the rivers of life-giving water available to us. When we forget Jesus, we begin to forget our purpose. And we just wander about, and we start to devote ourselves to lesser purposes. When we forget Jesus, we start to forget who we are. And we start to try to cobble together some identity apart from Jesus Christ. We start to look just like everybody else in the world who doesn't have Christ. Our priorities start to match our non-Christian neighbors, and soon there's nothing distinctive about us. It's so easy to do. I mean, I literally... While preparing this very sermon this week, I began to forget. 
I had a few mornings where I just was not able to get up and spend my time in prayer and in the word. Next thing you know, I was going about trying to do ministry in my own strength this week, prayerlessly, and crashed and burned big time. If, if I can forget while preparing a sermon about remembering, we are all susceptible to it. So, as we receive these elements, let's remember, let's remember, let's remember Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. When we remember, we live like sheep under the good shepherd. We know we're provided for and protected. When we remember, we follow God's ways and depend upon him in prayer. When we remember, we live the new life, soft-heartedness, repent, repenting. When we remember, we can stand strong against temptation because we're satisfied already in all of God's goodness toward us through Jesus. When we remember, we remember our purpose. We're designed to love God and love people. When we remember Jesus, we remember our identity. We're secure in who we are in Jesus Christ. We're free from trying to protect ourselves, build up ourselves to love others and worship God. So, just one moment, we're going to have a word of prayer, and I'm going to invite the, the deacons and ushers to help, and we'll pass these elements out, and we're going to receive a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. It's not magic bread, and it's not magic juice. But man, what they point to and the reminder they represent is so powerful. So as you hold that little piece of bread in your palm and you have that little cup of juice in your hand, there's always some breathing room in our observance of the Lord's Supper for thought. I want you just to think about this as a reminder. And the question to ask yourself is, what will be different for you now that you remember that Jesus is your Savior, Jesus is your Lord? What will be different about this week versus last week if you perhaps had started to forget What will be different now that we've been reminded? Colossians 11, verses 23 and on, this is what we read every time we receive the Lord's Supper. And I'll read it before we pray and and we begin. says, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we're about to receive the Lord's Supper. And I just ask that you would do uh, deep Holy Spirit-level work in our hearts to remind us really of what's true, that you are God alone, that Jesus is our Savior, and through him alone are we made right with you through his forgiveness, that he didn't just die for our sins, he arose from the grave, and he is our living Lord, and he has absolute ownership rights over us. He is the boss. He is the commander. Would you remind us of that, not just mentally so that we could recite those things as true, but in such a way that our hearts are adjusted to live accordingly. Would you please do that for us now in Jesus' name, amen.